0: word, and apologies for the lack of a tie, it's lying there beautifully on the bed, uh, waiting for me to put it on, and it, we weren't even particularly rushed this morning, I just forgot, so sorry for that, uh, but I have been getting given grace, I heard Denver clearly say we are not a legalistic church, and it's not required. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we can uh, turn to God's Word. Indeed, our Father and our God, we count it a privilege to weekly come together, and even more often as we do, to open your Word and to glean the truth of, and the gift of life through it, the sanctifying Word that grows us and uh, breaks us, and Lord, you rebuild us through it. So we thank you for that work of your Word in our lives the saving and sanctifying truth of it. And Lord, that we may not take that for granted. as we, And as we come to your word this morning, Lord, help us to um, build on that knowledge that you have given us, that you've imparted to us even more truth from which we can be more conformed to the likeness of your Son. So we uh, pray for that, that we have um, hearts that are ready to receive and ears to hear the love and the truth of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, there's a bit of an echo. I don't know. Is it this microphone? or It's coming back at me. I don't know if you hear it. But, yeah, so this morning, I'm going to be picking up from a sermon two times ago. um, But it it, it will, uh, I think it will come back to you. It was looking at... um, in Romans 1, 14 to 19, we were looking at Paul's explanation of his motivation or why he um, was so driven by the power and the, the gospel to deliver. Um, am I coming through it all now? Oh, okay, sorry. And so in that sermon, we looked at Romans 1, 16. Um, in fact, let me let me read sixteen to where we're going to be this morning. Eighteen, I'll read just past that, just so the context makes sense. Uh, they they are looking at two aspects here. We're looking at the righteousness of God, but also there's other elements of God as well, uh, and that is His wrath that is highlighted very early in this book, and for good reason. Uh, so let me turn there, uh, Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, in verse 17, where I'm going to start, just to bring us up to speed where we were last time, uh, as an introduction to this morning's sermon. Um, Paul here is looking at, for his, his, he's explaining his motivation in verse 17, for it's the righteousness of God revealed from um, faith to faith. And, and that, is, that makes God the just one, but also the one who is the justifier. Um, only the one who is perfectly just can be the one that also justifies the unrighteous. The phrase here, the righteousness of God, is better translated the righteousness from God uh, that He bestows to us in His Son. Because it is by faith that we receive the righteousness from Christ's substitutional death, right? And the phrase of God means that it's His righteousness that He provides for people on the basis of their response to Him. So, we don't receive righteousness because of human effort or by any religious obligation or tradition. It is a righteousness that is given or, more theologically explained, imputed in response to Christ. But this morning, I want to kind of exposit the last part of this section of Romans where Paul, or Romans 1 anyway, where Paul does that, makes his contrast between the righteousness of God with the unrighteousness of men. And, of course, the consequences of this, which is reaping God's wrath. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those who do not know the Lord are indeed perishing. And Paul explains that God's wrath is already being poured out on the unrighteous, those who reject Him. That's the present tense term, is revealed. In verse 18, it means God's wrath is already taking place. And it can also be translated constantly, or there's an ongoing uh, revelation, either through direct natural consequences of rejecting God or sin, or indirectly through God handing people over, or entire nations even, over to their sin. So God's condemnation is the natural consequences of the fallen nature of man that suppresses the truth. Uh, ignores his revelation, and then also perverts God's holiness and glory. But Paul here is describing more than just these natural results or consequences of this rebellion. He's describing the consequences of God also in action here. God's not inactive in it. He's removing the spirit of restraint, His Holy Spirit. He hands them over later to their lusts and depravity. And so if you recall in the last message where we looked at Paul's devotion and determination to the gospel, despite his beatings, his imprisonment, and general suffering, he was devoted to the gospel. Why? In verse 16 he says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so even though Paul expected even um, to be persecuted for proclaiming the gospel, he tells us that he's not ashamed to do it. Because the gospel is the only way man can be reconciled with God. The only way um, God's wrath can be satisfied uh, toward those who are in fact His enemies. And He was motivated by this to deliver a message that would result in ultimately His own martyrdom, right? So, So I'm just changing the screen here. So Paul then, he fully comprehended that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. He knew that there was no power in any human effort or any even ministry that we would would wear as ministry without the Gospel. There is no power in our speech. We're not particularly winsome, and uh, there's no power in our songs that we sing. So there's no power in any social influence that we might try to have in the community. There's no power in our riches and resources either, uh, or our numbers, apart from the gospel. So our human convincing can never tra- transfer a man from a rebe- re- rebel against God or enemy of God to the righteousness of God. And the reason the co- gospel is the power of God for salvation is found in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the only thing that reveals to sinful man who he is. It's the only thing that man has to know God's righteousness. And scripture could not be more clear on God's expectation of man either. And that's the main thrust for this morning is to look at God's high standard for holiness and how we can achieve it, but also the consequences of not. And he spells out the requirements very plainly for us in Matthew 5:48. We're very familiar with that. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And 1 Peter 1:16, 1, uh, Peter, you're citing Levit- Leviticus 11. He confirms it as well. That he reminds the church that since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So God calls us and he commands us to be holy. And some professing Christians feel that these passages are metaphors. Um, you know, they're just making it's hyperbole. Just do well is what God's trying to tell us. Do your best um, to aim high. But if you fall short, that's all right, because God will fill in the, the difference. Or what is lacking, if you recall uh, last week's sermon. Uh, that's not at all what he meant, but that is how some interpret it. There's a gap somehow that you can... Be, have filled in by God, or you can fill in. You work together to just do your best. But that's not at all. So uh, don't walk away thinking that is what God means. That's not at all what He's saying here. In, in Matthew, when Christ says that followers of Christ must be perfect, He not only demands and commands, but He also gives the reason why. Because your Heavenly Father is perfect. That describes the separation we have between a perfect holy God and ourselves. So God demands righteousness, and He demands holiness. And this is what Paul means in verse 17 when he says that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. It means that only God has explained to us how to attain the righteousness, that only He can also provide. This means that the righteousness does not come from us, it's given. And to be sure, this is not a new requirement for mankind, found only in the New Testament or in the church age. That's not suddenly what God expects of us. Faith has always been the requirement. The only thing that has changed is how it is credited to man. If you look at Romans 4, 3, a couple chapters down, Paul says this, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Which brings me back to my opening point about Paul's resolve and his motivation When preaching, he was unashamed, knowing with expectation that the result would be suffering, because he knew that it was of God, for God, and from God that man is saved. And many professing believers diminish God's demand for holiness and righteousness. And why do they do that? How can they come away from, even if they look at it metaphorically, why is there a diminished understanding of that? Because they think grace is all the more. It's permissive grace. They have come to believe that God's demand for righteousness can be overlooked because of God's loving kindness and grace. that will fill the difference. God's merciful, they would argue. And so, can it really matter that we don't meet His high standard of perfection, holiness? And Can't we just lean on His grace, rather? isn't it the thought that counts i wanted to be righteous i worked really hard isn't that sufficient they might say well god can't simply overlook our sin and our unrighteousness because he can withhold his wrath with mercy and grace that's that cheapens in a sense god's holiness and it cheapens his perfect justice So why do we need to be righteous before God is the question. That's our question for this morning. I know that was a bit of a long intro, just bringing uh, Paul's motivation into it. But it's why God's wrath is just and why we need to be perfectly righteous to avoid His righteous anger toward us. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is where we're gonna be spending most of the time this morning. And um, oh, I forgot to put my timer on. Actually, I'll just watch the clock. Um some who read this this verse in particular um argue that if professing believers fail to reach God's demand, then we are simply just gonna maybe the consequences might be missing out on some blessing in in eternity. Um or we'll somehow avoid punishment from God because of the other good things we've done. That if we fail somehow in this standard, it won't result in God's rejection of us, or condemnation, but maybe just a lesser position. But this isn't what scriptures teach. Failure to achieve perfect righteousness keeps you under God's wrath. It doesn't put you there, you're already there, and it keeps you there. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So, failure to be perfect, failure to be holy, failure to be righteous, keeps us under that wrath, because we cannot meet that standard. So this morning, if we don't understand that the wrath of God is part of the gospel, we don't actually understand the gospel. If it's incomplete without it, we've maybe convinced ourselves that God is all-loving, so therefore there can't be punishment. He'll somehow overlook who we really are. He'll overlook our sin. And that is another gospel. That is a false gospel. To understand the gospel means to understand also God's wrath and His anger against sin. Because without the wrath of God, His justice is incomplete. It's flawed. He, we would be escaping punishment that we deserve and payment that needs to be reconciled. So, the gospel requires the righteousness of God. It requires the judgment of God, the holiness of God, and His wrath. So, let's look at the reality. Let's really understand the reality of God's wrath. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven, is the first part of verse 18. And I've stated already, many believers are a bit surprised as they study this passage, Uh, that it's actually part of the gospel. (laughs) They can't imagine a God that would be loving and also extend His wrath to those who were His enemies. But this is because they have created a gospel of their own imagination, or even a God of their own mind, uh, which has their own sense of justice and their own sense of mercy. And most believers today have even deleted God's wrath because He's only known by that favorite attribute of their own, which is grace, loving kindness, which permits them to live the way they want. But that is a cheap grace, which I'll look at just now. It's not godly grace, that is cheap grace, a phrase that's been coined in this uh, century. And they also omit other things from the gospel as well, right? Um, You see a gospel that deletes man's depravity. Total depravity isn't even mentioned, uh, or judgment, or hell. Um, The anger of God uh, is misunderstood. And not mentioned. So these attributes of God are avoided because we live in a very permissive time in the church and in our culture in general. And uh, we want to delete or soften these truths that God does, in fact, confront that sin. And uh, they shatter our idolatrous view of God that we may, may have fashioned in our own minds. But these attributes of God are critical in the gospel. The grace, the mercy, the compassion, and the love. We can easily proclaim that. On a Saturday morning, if I was just going to walk around and talk about love, um, or mercy, or loving kindness, or grace, I wouldn't be worried at all. Because that's not the part that gets people upset. You're not dealing with the whole truth of God's gospel if you don't also mention the wrath um, And by deleting that part, you're removing the power of the gospel. God, they would say, if God um, doesn't hate sin, and if that's your gospel message to somebody, just love and compassion, then why would they hate sin if God doesn't hate sin? If God isn't angry because of sin, why would they receive punishment for that? If God's wrath isn't the consequence of sin, why do we need to be saved from it? You see, it is part of the gospel. And if we don't need to be saved from God's wrath, then there isn't any need for, ultimately, a Savior. Because what would you be saved from? Less love? A a, a mediocre mercy? The consequences are dire. And this is why Paul introduces the wrath of God so early in this epistle. It's essential to understanding God's holy expectation. And Paul follows this explanation of God's just and righteous wrath with the sinfulness of man later. Uh, he's, he makes it very, and, and that we are with that excuse. He introduces that very early on to the church. But let's look just quickly at this idea of cheap grace. Uh, one of the reasons grace is, grace is so misunderstood today is, uh, well, also, also the cultural influences, but, and even within the church. Mainly because we have a very high sense of ourselves, right? Our own worthiness. Uh, we are very self-sufficient people. We, as Denver just mentioned, we don't even pray for our daily bread, or we don't understand what that means. We can't relate to that kind of dependency anymore because we have so much wealth and comfort. So we tend to feel entitled. As that, as we grow up in that um, affluence, we become accustomed to it. We don't feel that we. Um, or should should have any any need, entitlement. And grace means this, God's benevolence toward the undeserving. But if you feel deserving all the time, this is very hard to understand grace. You could also say God's favor toward the unworthy, but if you feel worthy, this is hard to understand. So when we speak of God's grace, we speak of God giving something of himself toward those Who do not deserve that thing that God has received, that you are being received, uh, that He is giving and you're receiving. But this sense of awe, this sense of gratitude is lost when we feel we deserve. And today, many believers teach that they, in fact, do deserve mercy from God rather than pleading for it. It's something that they expect to fill the gaps, to fill in their own an inability to be perfect. God will make up the difference. And when you feel lofty, if you feel entitled, if you feel worthy, then you won't feel any need for grace. And uh, rather than feeling that it should be graciously dispensed to you in repentance, you feel it should be given. So cheap grace is a term that was coined by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and And he noted even in Second World War Germany how... Worldly, the believers, had become, and he says this, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Christ. In other words, it's Christless Christianity. Or as John MacArthur later called it uh, during the Lordship Controversy, he called it carnal Christianity which is, I think, even a better phrase. Because you can live as worldly as you want and still wear the label as Christian. So it's a profession of faith that kind of makes a mockery of God's grace and love. You know, it, it, it tramples on His offering of you being restored to Him through His Son. So even the idea of love is completely cheapened and distorted today, Right? And it's cheapened to distort it because we distorted God's wrath. When we continually remove any consequences for our life, then everything else becomes meaningless because we can do as we wish. And again, because there is no need for a Savior, you don't need to be saved because you are already worthy. So when we have a lofty view of ourselves, we begin to view God simply as a dispenser of love and gifts and second chances. And so then grace becomes just permission, in a sense, to keep on living the way we want. So the modern church has no time to consider how desperately they need forgiveness because they never look at their sin and God's wrath toward that sin. And when you remove wrath from the gospel, from your preaching, you undermine grace. And God's wrath reveals to us not only what desperate and wretched sinners we are, But on the other side, how merciful He is and how great His love is, on the other hand, because of His offer of mercy and grace. And so we must first understand that um, wrath is something we deserve before we can comprehend comprehend the mercy that is offered. So I think we need to establish this morning that God's wrath is key, in a sense. it's why Paul introduces it so early here, that the wrath of God is revealed. And that word wrath here in the Greek is orgē, and it means anger. Now, there are a couple of different Greek words that are used for anger. Uh, man's propensity to anger, but there's also God's, and they're very different. Um, thumos is the Greek for man's reactionary kind of anger. Um, it's, a, it's a pent-up kind of rage a kind of impulsive outburst that we maybe are all too familiar with. And, of course, you would only associate that with man, because only man is capable of that kind of an outburst. Uh, It's almost an irrational one. It's what you see when man is overcome with emotion, which we looked at again this morning, and they, they can't restrain the building up of frustration or rage, and it rises immediately and bursts forth like kind of a chain reaction. And we know from our study in James, in James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So it's at odds with God's righteousness. But yet God is angry. How does that work? So this kind of manward anger, man-ish anger, thumos, is condemned by God. God's anger is not impulsive nor explosive. That's orge. It's a resolved anger. It's a settled and determined anger from outside of time toward a sin God knows will come. It's also an abiding anger. And it's perfectly related and at one with God's holiness because the anger is based on His just and holy perfection. It's a wrath that's rational but also deserved. And it's devoted to God's perfect justice, because the guilty are p- punished. The innocent are set free, but the guilty are punished. And there are, really, there are five kinds of wrath that I want to quickly describe here to just understand how deep and theological the wrath of God is, um, God's wrath towards sinners. Uh, there are five types described in Scripture. There's eternal wrath, eschatological wrath, calamitous wrath, and consequential wrath. Well, there's also the wrath of abandonment, but that's where we're going to be this morning. But eternal is just that separation from God for eternity. The final judgment for those who reject Christ. The future wrath, eschatological wrath, is this outpouring of God's judgment in the last days. That's to come. Calamitous, well, we know what that word means, calamity. Those are interventions of God's wrath, like a flood. We can think of the destruction of them. Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are inter um, interventions of God. Consequential wrath, which we live day to day. Just bad choices that we make, sinful choices. And whatever we sow, we reap. And then the wrath of abandonment. This is described here in, in Romans 1, and how God judges individuals, judges groups and nations. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But... When we look at the many facets of God's wrath, it is always just... When we speak of wrath, and even when we looked at the idea of emotions this morning, these are things that we need to restrain, because we are not perfect. We often use them as excuses. I got angry because of something outside of me. You made me angry. Um... God doesn't operate like that. His wrath and His anger is just and perfect. And uh, it's always given because it's deserved and it's always given at the right time. And this is why um, Paul points out later in Romans that God is the one who will deliver justice as well. There's a future tense. And, uh, and the, le- the, the, the believer, Paul is, is told, needs to leave room for God's justice to be vetted out to others. And Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The orge of God assures the believer and those that are unjustly persecuted, those believers who are dealing with unjust persecution, God assures them that He will settle those accounts in His timing with His just wrath. And Paul affirms the need to trust in God's wrath and His justice in Romans 2, 5, 6 as well. He says, But because your hard and uh, impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he will render to each one according to his works." So that's God's wrath. That's Orge. It is a wrath that does not forget. It is stored up. Uh, It is just. It doesn't overlook. Um, It can't be tricked. It doesn't diminish. But it does postpone. And that's another reason why grace has become Mm. so cheap. Because God allows the just punishment for our sin to be delayed. We don't feel that immediate consequence, right? While God's memory is perfect, our memory is short and fickle, so we forget that there is justice to come. You got away with it, so maybe I'll get away with it again. But the wrath of God keeps a record for everyone who sits under His wrath. And because we don't see this instantaneous or direct wrath as a result of our actions or a sin, we forget it's waiting and so I hope um, um, yeah, we can see that Paul means what, what he means about God's wrath being real, and unlike the human anger or, or human wrath that we have, uh, humanly speaking. But Paul also tells us in verse 18 something else about God's wrath. He says it's revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And that's in a present tense term. Paul's not saying that God's wrath is formally revealed and is no longer. Uh, He's not saying that it will be revealed in the future, so watch out. It is revealed, he says. When we think of wrath, we sometimes think that God is no longer delivering His wrath to mankind because of grace, because of the cross. And we don't see the consequences dealt out like we did in the Old Testament. Like We read about the consequences and the, even the instances in the Gospel. right? We remember the consequence of uh, Lot's wife, and, uh, who immediately was made into a pillar of assault for disobeying God by looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't look back, they were commanded, and she looked back. In the New Testament, God also dealt immediately and resolutely with Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira for their, their flagrant sin of hypocrisy. And dishonesty, when they disclosed that they had, or dishonestly disclosed that they had given all of their proceeds, but they did not. And they lost their lives that day, immediately. And today we see sins like this all the time. Dishonesty, uh, disobedience. We see it in the church. Yet God doesn't strike people dead. For the sins of hypocrisy, I think it would change our behavior if he did. (laughs) But he delays. So has God changed? Has he removed his wrath? Is God now tired of dealing with sin and uh, put some sort of cosmic pause button on it? Does he care less about sin? No. God hates sin today just like he always has. And Paul states this already. That this is what he means when he says, is revealed. The Greek word here is apokalupto. And that means to uncover something, right? To reveal what was previously covered. Paul explains this even more clearly a few verses down in verse 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped And serve the creature rather than the creator. Paul here is describing an extreme form of idolatry. And because of this, God is the one who is giving man over to more of this, to more of what that man really wants, which is worship of ourselves, love of ourselves, indulgence, uh, and worship of creation um, without fear and without repentance. So, if a person persists in worshiping of a God that is not real, the true God will eventually hand them over to that desire and will blind their hearts and minds to himself. So, what does it mean, gave them up, in that passage, verse 24? Uh, some translations say, uh, translate it or over, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts and impurity. But that's, it's a judicial term. It's a declaration. It's a legal term. And it means that these egregious sins is the sentence, in part, uh, because it creates a result and a desire for more. So the sentence to sinful man is that God will abandon them just as they have abandoned Him. He removes that restraint that He offered From their hearts, and the result will be that that sin will lead to more sin, and it will take its inevitable course to destruction. So, the judicial sentence that is revealed, that present day wrath, is the idolatry that God permits today. The idolatry, and I would say the escalating consequences of that sin, is the punishment. He's allowing men to destroy their own souls by worship of themselves and indulgence of lusts. And even those lusts become a point of worship. But it gets worse. Let's read down further. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. They received. We can kind of relate to this passage, unfortunately, today. Can't we? If you were to, (laughs) if you could, I should say, if you can, you let me know. But if you could time travel, let's say even 20 years ago, which is within most of our lifetimes, if you could time travel to a church on a Sunday morning, and I would say almost any church within the evangelical circles, kick in the door, run up to the pulpit and say, Guys, let me describe the state of the world today in terms of sexual promiscuity, gender confusion, transsexuality, mutilation of young, uh, trans youth. You would explain that from the pulpit. What would they immediately think of in Scripture? This verse, Romans 1, 26, 27. They would not believe a state of things. They would say, you are living in that due penalty for their error. That time described in Romans 1.26. And it's only escalating. I believe we are in those times. And God has indeed handed over men to their sins. And it is the wrath of God revealed before our eyes. It is a spiritual punishment that eventually results in a physical punishment. The, the spiritual does and will increasingly result in physical and we know that God can put an end to this, immediately, that we see on display. We've already seen in the Old Testament and the Early New Testament that He does intervene, and He has intervened, but not any longer. The punishment is allowed to carry on. And this is what it means at the end of verse 27, they reap their rewards of sin. That is what that means, due penalty for their error. God allows the sin to increase. He permits the self-destruction of man and and mankind who, who harden their hearts toward Him, who harden their hearts in worship and rather indulge in the lust of the flesh. And the result is the wrath of God revealed. And Paul continues. There is more. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So now we've gone from the spiritual to the physical to the mental. And from that debased mind, they do, to do the things that they ought not to do. And these are people who do not fear the Lord at all. They transfer their worship of the one true God to themselves. We've, we've seen how the due penalty God hands over to the spiritual depravity leads to this physical debauchery. And then what's the next step? This is the mental part. Um, it's a mental shortfall, it's a mental instability that is a result of God removing His restraining spirit. And we the sound reasoning has been removed. And we go from being fit to unfit, from sound to unsound, from discerning to undiscerning. And as Pastor Mark used to say, those of you who sat under some of his teaching, it's a kind of irrational fury. Uh, it's a good phrase, because it is fury, anger at anything that is new or different or opposed to their own idea of good. And that's what's taking over the minds of this generation. Have you ever tried to debate with somebody who has this kind of irrational fury, whether it's an eco-zealot or a a trans-advocate or activist, I should say? They, they won't even reason with their own propositions, because they aren't propositions. They aren't arrived at logically, they are just simply bullet points. They're, it's a rehearsed narrative that is internally incoherent, but is loud <laughs> and, is, and demands allegiance, but cannot be um, opposed. There's, there's no permission for it to be challenged, I should say. No reasoning is required. And so, in this way, for many, sin has closed their minds. And that's the consequence of God's wrath. It's spiritual, then physical, and then finally, there's a mental aspect to it. Not that they're separate. They're all from the spiritual. It means that at this stage, they're incapable of seeing their sin when there's an irrational mind, which means the the inability to even confess a sin to God. And this is why I think this is the worst kind of punishment. Because they're unable to see the sinfulness of their sin. They're unable to acknowledge what is right or what is wrong. There's no moral or immoral comparison anymore. It's just amoral. All is equal. There's no good or bad. There's just simply doing. And we're living in those times. There's just indulgence without consequence. And so the tragedy of this kind of reprobate mind is that they cannot cry out to the Lord in brokenness, longing to be right with Him. Their minds are closed to repentance. And that means closed off to restoration. That is what is meant by the revealed wrath of God. So I hope we've established the reality that wrath is real and it is present and it is being revealed. It's ongoing. God is still dealing with sin, just as harshly, and it's just a different way. So who are the ones who receive God's wrath? We read here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, that's who? That's the who? That's the recipient against all. You may be thinking that the recipient of God's wrath are just those extreme idolaters, um, the the sexual depraved, the the trans-activists, the rebellious sinners, that display the lavishness of their sin. And that you're not as bad as those guys, so you're alright, hey? You'll escape God's wrath. Well, maybe, but not necessarily. Paul is describing, in this section of Romans, types of sins. He's not limiting to... uh, well, he is limiting in this case just to sexual sins, but it's a, there's a broader categories of sin. The list Paul here is giving is not exhaustive; it's representative of the worst kind. And God's wrath has a much broader scope than just these specific sins that we're talking about, or, or that Paul is talking about. And we know that because Paul mentions this in this verse. He talks about all unrighteousness of men and all ungodliness. And all unrighteousness, those are the things that are under the wrath of God. Ungodliness uh, comes from the word sebia. I hope I got that right, Denver. (laughs) And what it means is a total disregard for the person of God. John MacArthur states this about sebia. Asebia stresses a faulty personal relationship with God. It refers to a lack of reverence for, devotion to, and worship of the true God, a failure that inevitably leads to some form of false worship. So those who are in this Asebia, they don't revere God, they don't love God, they don't obey God, and they certainly then can't worship God. But that is what God demands is worship, and that's what God deserves, to be worshipped. And this could include those who publicly acknowledge God, but privately deny Him. Certainly they are ungodly, the ones that we've just looked at, but so are those who publicly proclaim, but privately don't. And we can watch the rebellion of these extreme sinners and say, yeah, That's a man who's under God's wrath. I can see the behavior, but it's more sinister than that. It's not limited to them. It's also those who perhaps come to church regularly and still have a low view of God and a false worship of Him. It could be those who claim to know God but deny them. Or those who claim to know Him and don't obey Him. And by doing so, they are blaspheming His name. And Paul mentions this in Romans 2.24. Uh, further down in Romans, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's the hypocrisy that is the blasphemy. The boast of faithfulness, but yet do not obey Him. And we see this disregard for God well, in Titus as well. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. And what does it say next? They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These were the hypocrites that Christ spoke most about in the Gospels, right? When he gives examples of hypocrisy, he generally, or lawbreakers, he generally was referring to the Jews more than he's referring to the Gentiles. Because they're so religious and they had so much external um, obedience, but internally zero repentance. The leaders of the Jews in particular were the most extreme examples of hypocrisy that he uses. In Matthew 23, 29, I'll quickly say what he says here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying... If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Wow, (laughs) strong words of condemnation there. These were men who claimed to love God publicly. They claimed to fear God publicly. They had observances that demonstrated the fear of God outwardly. They were very religious and they did all the correct religious things. But they were whitewashed tombs, religious on the outside but dead bones on the inside. They were not devoted to the Lord nor worshipped him from their hearts. They loved the idols they had built in their own minds and their own hearts and worshipped a false god, that false god of religion. Their worship was false, and that's what made them ungodly. They're under God's wrath. So if ungodliness can mean even having a faulty worship of God, what does Paul mean by the unrighteous then in this verse? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteous in the Greek is adikia. And in this context, I think, means wrongness of character or could be explained as a result of ungodliness. Again, MacArthur, who's not my only check, but he's a popular check and balance, says this, ungodliness unavoidably leads to unrighteousness. Because men's relation to their God is wrong. Their relation to their fellow man is wrong because of that. Men treat other men the way they do because they treat God the way they do. Very wise words here. Man's enmity with his fellow man originates with his being at enmity with God. Well, that is kind of the greatest and the second greatest commandment in action, isn't it? What, are we first, what is What are the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and might uh, might, and hope. mind. <laughs> and what is the second greatest? It is the outflow of that. You can't possibly love your neighbor as yourself if that is wrong. And that is enmity toward man because you have enmity with God. And this doesn't just describe the heathen on the street or the worst of the Jews. The unregenerate rebel, it describes the the man or the woman in the church who sings so well um, and loves being there and feeling great about being there, but does not love their brother or sister in Christ. Paul is making the point that these people reveal their ungodliness by their unrighteous deeds and unrighteous hearts. If they cannot love their brother and sister in Christ, how can they possibly then say they love God? People whose, whose lives characterized are characterized by this kind of life reveal unrighteousness, which in turn reveals ungodliness. John 3.16, John the Baptist said it best, "...whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." Again, in the present tense, "...already remains." He has not escaped God's condemnation. So that's hypocrisy and false worship on display. If a person doesn't obey God's Word, despite what they claim, they do not truly love the Lord. And the wrath of God remains, or shall I say, abides on them. So faith and obedience must go hand in hand. If you have faith, it can only be true if it is followed by obedience. Not perfect obedience but a desire for obedience. So think. I think the points in this passage are simple. (laughs) God's wrath is real, and the recipients of His wrath are not just the worst, but all of those who do not worship Him. And that is why later in Romans, Paul says that all of those who reject Christ are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies... We were While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. If then only those who are reconciled by God through His Son that are right with Him, that, are right with him, that is the only way, everyone else who has not been reconciled with God still remains to be an enemy. Everyone. The worst murderer, to just the grumpy granny going through the motions. She's been going there her whole life. She is as the worst murderer. And those who deserve the wrath of God include everyone who doesn't honor honor God as Lord, who are worshiping falsely or a false god. No matter how close the likeness to that worship looks, that's religion. And you're an enemy of God if you're participating in this religion or a religion, this false worship. So lastly, we're nearly done. The reason for His wrath, the last part of verse 18. Who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Remember, you're an enemy of God. Why? Because you are in a wrong relationship with Him. You don't worship Him. To be an enemy means that you are not reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And everyone who has not placed their trust in His Son is guilty of God's wrath. Because you're not ignorant. That's why Paul makes this point very plain in describing the recipients of wrath. In Romans 19, one verse down. For well, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This means there is an internal testimony that verifies and clarifies God to every human. An eternal testimony. And we know Him. Because he's placed that knowledge of Him in all of us. And he's gone further than that by displaying the reality of God in creation. But men under God's wrath reject Him. But they go further than just rejecting Him here. Verse 25, They exchanged a truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's a kind of willful disobedience now. It's exchanging something you have, you know to be true, and willfully, in full knowledge, exchange it for a lie. This is one of the reasons God is angry, obviously. Not just because of ignorance, because we know we're not, but they, they know the truth and still trade it for a lie. And they find satisfaction. And it reveals the ugliness of their sinful reality. And so, what do they do in verse 18? they, Because they know that, they suppress that truth. Suppression in the Greek, keteko means to really hold something down. It's an active process. It's not a once-off. It's a, a continual thing that has to be done to hide and to keep it from being revealed, suppressing it. And that is what unbelievers do with the knowledge of God. They know it's true. They can't deny the truth and the knowledge of Him. So how do they get up in the morning? How do they cope? They stubbornly hold it down. And this is probably best epitomized and illustrated in the crucifixion of Christ. The chief priests knew of Christ. They they couldn't deny who He was and who He said He was. He met all of the prophetic requirements, was perfect in his life, perfect in his teaching, but they suppressed the truth and put him to death. And many of you here this morning may do the same. You love your sins so much and hate that God reveals that sin to you, that the only way you get up in the morning is by suppressing the truth of God. And by doing that, what are you doing? You're calling God a liar. He's the one who's revealing the truth to you, and you suppress it. So I ask you: Are you playing church? Are you here this morning because you had to be for the the benefit of man? Did you come? Are you for the the man? Yeah, eye pleasing of man. Are you just going through the motions to avoid condemnation or conflict with? fellow man in the church. So you have to come. But in the same way, willing to accept the condemnation of God. You're here to avoid conflict and debate and arguments. You come, but willing to take condemnation. Are you a hypocrite who suppresses the truth by professing to know God, but live as the world? Then, I say to you, you are under the wrath of God, and you are in need of the saving work of His Son. And that's the most important part of the message this morning. If you've been sort of half-listening, listen now. One paragraph. This is it. If you could take anything away from this morning, understand this in the context of the wrath of God. It is that God's wrath is just. It is perfect. It is holy. And that wrath that you may be under this morning is satisfied in His Son. It is not going to be poured out on you if you place your trust in the work of His Son. Here we have the ultimate good news. Because of Christ, God can rightly call sinners, those under His wrath, justified. God has done what we cannot and could not do. And He has done that, even though we don't deserve it. If that is you today, and God has revealed that to you, don't suppress or hold that truth down any longer. Come to him in repentance. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father God, we give you thanks for that truth this morning, and praise. And Lord, we are gladdened to know that, Lord, we are not required to try and satisfy anything, nor could we. Lord, we are wretched. We are deserving of your wrath. We are vessels of your wrath. We are your enemies. But yet, you have sent your Son. And your Son willingly came to absorb that wrath on our behalf. Now Lord, what a precious gift. Lord, may we not rebel any longer. May we um, understand that that suppression of your truth um, and that suppression and denial of our own sin is not the end of us. Lord, that you have offered your Son in our place, that, Lord, that guilt and weight on our shoulders can be lifted, and our burden and our yoke made light in in your Son. And what a gift you have given us. We pray and thank you for this in his name. Amen.